This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, teaching minister Tim Peace will be teaching our message. So I was thinking this week about how I was going to jump into uh, our second week of our series, Undeserved. This series is actually taking us through three movements. Uh, The first month, which we're focusing on the book of Ruth, is about grace. And then the next month, we'll be talking generosity, and then we'll be talking gratitude. And so um, while we're in this series, I was thinking about what could I say to kind of Uh, get us thinking about what we are going to discover in in Ruth. And so I started to think back when Angie and I first got married, we lived in an apartment off of Nagel Road in Anderson. And at the time, I was working at a bank in Milford. And uh, so I had to take 275 to work. And where we were living at the time, I could have turned right or left on the Beachmont Avenue to hit a 275 exit ramp onto 275 and get to work. But there was something that always made me turn left. And that was that at that time, there was a Starbucks drive through <laughs> on the way there. Now, the funny thing is, is like Starbucks drive throughs are like everywhere now. But at the time, uh, this was the only drive through location in the area and, you know, you, you going into work, you need your daily fix of coffee. I became a routine person. Actually, I didn't become a routine customer at Starbucks then. I often like to tell people when I tell my faith story that not only did my discipleship group leaders uh, when I was in high school and early college instill faith in me, but they also helped form my ongoing coffee addiction, uh, specifically at Starbucks, like we would have our meetings there. And I was never really a big coffee drinker before then. And it was kind of one of those things where it's like, um, you start out with the most sugar-induced coffee as kind of your gateway in. And then suddenly, next thing you know, you're drinking black coffee. You don't even need the other stuff. But at the time, uh, you know, it was kind of a mix and match situation. Who knew what I was gonna get? There was this one particular morning where the line was long. And I didn't have a smartphone yet at the time, so I couldn't do something that would endanger other people on the drive-thru. And I was, I I decided, you know, I'm a people watcher anyway. That's one of the reasons, as an aside, I like to be in the airport. I'm a weirdo. I like airports because I like to watch people. But anyway, I was watching what was unfolding in the line ahead of me, and I started to notice that the customer-barista interactions were starting to take a little longer than usual. And I don't know what they were saying at the time, but I was seeing, you know, the barista try to wave off the payment of the person, and I saw some pointing to the back, and I was sitting here thinking, well, what's going on? So the car that was at the front, they drive off. The next one pulls into the spot to pay for their drink, and I start to see the same thing happen. And then that car leaves, and then the same thing happens, and I start to realize what's going on. Have any of you ever been involved in a drive-through, pay-it-forward scenario? Yeah. So the drive-through, pay-it-forward scenario is this. Some kind soul uh, decided, I'm not only going to buy my drink, but to show kindness to the person behind me, whom I may never see again, I'm going to buy theirs too. 
And this starts a chain reaction to where the person that got paid for pays for the person behind them and on and on and on. Now, here's the thing about this. The only real generous person in this scenario is the first person because you have to pay no matter what. Or do you? See, that's what came to mind when I pulled up to the window. The, the guy that was the barista at the time, because I told you I'd become a regular head, had at one time worked at another location and was now working the drive through And so we knew each other by name and I, I was talking to him and uh, he told me that this basically had been going on since about 6 a.m. It's a pretty good, you know, pretty good uh, pay it forward scenario. And uh, so we're talking about this and I couldn't tell if he was being serious, but he, he turns to me and goes, you know, he goes, you could just end this whole thing right now and take the free drink. <laughs> and I have to be honest with you, I thought about it for a moment. Because here's the thing about that. I am under no obligation to pay for the person behind me. I ordered my drink and the only obligation I have is to make sure my drink is paid for. And it was by the person in front of me. Because here's the thing, when you're in those scenarios, you do run this risk. The person behind you might have got a venti when you got a grande, and their drink might have been more expensive. But it's a risk-reward proposition, because it's also possible that your latte was more expensive than their black coffee. What to do? Well, here's the thing, I couldn't bring myself to let the, the line end so I decided, I was like, you know, I'll go ahead and pay for the person behind me. And they just had black coffee. <laughs> That's a win right there. I tell you that story because as we look at Ruth chapter 2 today, we're going to see this idea of kindness on an interactive level between the characters in the story. In fact, it's a theme that you see throughout the book of Ruth. But the reason that it's a theme is because the kindness that we're going to see in the story goes above and beyond what's obligated. That's what makes it kindness. In fact, that's what makes it grace, which is why we're talking about grace this month. And so we're going we're gonna to go into Ruth chapter 2, but before we do that, I want to recap a little bit of the background of the story that we find in Ruth. Some of this Didi mentioned last week in terms of background, some of it are details that I think it's important for us to know because the book of Ruth is very, very peculiar to our modern ears when we're reading it or hearing it. Um, it's, a, it's a great story. Some even say it's a really great love story. But the truth is there are some things that we can very easily gloss over that are important for us to understand, at least on some sort of basic level, for us to grasp all of the goodness and godliness going on in the story. So to recap, what the book of Ruth is about, it's about this family from Bethlehem who uproots during the time of a famine, which is interesting because the name Bethlehem actually has to do with being fulfilled. So there's even a play on words with the fact that this family is coming from Bethlehem and going to a foreign land called Moab. This family is the family of Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. 
And what happens is there's a famine in the land, and so they go to Moab to escape the famine and go to a place that's more plentiful. And they go there as a family, and the two sons end up marrying two foreigners that are not, not Israelites, um, named Orpah and Ruth, two Moabite women. Immediately in chapter one, we find out that Elimelech dies. And so this not only created sadness and, and concern and, and a kind of a dire situation for Naomi to lose her husband in this culture, but her sons were still there. And in this culture, it is a culture that we would say is patrilineal. Many of us hear the word patriarchy all the time. It's patrilineal. It means that the land and the resources always stay in the name of the man. It's actually a way of keeping things clean on the books, but it also has protections for the people, specifically the women, because in that time, women were not uh, considered equals by most of the surrounding cultures, and so the system was set up so that women don't go without in the event of uh, a spouse dying. It would transfer to the sons, or maybe um, there, there was actually this thing called leverate marriage, which is really weird for our modern sensibilities. It's where if the husband dies, a brother will step in and marry so that everything stays within the family. But there wasn't a brother around, so things would transfer to the sons. And we find out in the text that they lived 10 years in, in Moab, and then suddenly the two sons die. And now you've got a woman and her two daughters-in-law from Bethlehem living in a foreign land with no kinsmen around to fulfill the obligations of protection. And so Naomi decides, I'm going to go back to my people. And my daughters-in-law, you know, I love you, but if you go back, you're foreigners, you're going to have nothing there. In fact, she tells everyone to start calling her Mara, which means bitter, because she's in this horrible situation where she has literally nothing and she doesn't want that for her daughters-in-law. In fact, we don't catch this, but it is a grace in and of itself for her to tell her daughters-in-law to go back to their homeland, to their mothers and their, their fathers, because they can reestablish themselves at home. Now, after some convincing, Orpah decides she's going to go back to Moab. But Ruth, Ruth on the other hand, she makes a bold declaration of commitment that goes above and beyond the expectation of the culture. She tells Naomi, uh -uh, I'm not going back. Your people will become my people. Your God will become my God. And heaven forbid if anything other than death separates us. And that's how chapter one ends. So when we get to chapter two, we have this back, backdrop of this situation, this dire situation, these two ladies, one of which being a foreigner going back to Bethlehem, oddly enough, and in a foreshadowing sense, because the Bible writing, by the way, is genius, Bethlehem is no longer in a state of starvation, it is in a state of plenty when they go back, which is foreshadowing what God's going to do in their lives. But anyway, 
We'll get to that later. So I want you to follow along with me in chapter two as we go through and see what happens with Naomi and Ruth heading back to Bethlehem. You can follow on the screen or in your Bible if you have it with you. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind so anyone in whose, uh, behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered him. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. She's working hard. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of even one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it into the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. 
The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of, the, uh, of Boaz to glean until the bar- barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, when we think about the situation that Naomi and Ruth have come from, Ruth being a foreigner, Naomi seemingly having no uh, sibling to her husband to take care of the family. Ruth asks to go and glean to pick up, which basically means to pick up, it spells it out here in the NIV, it's to pick up whatever's left over from the harvest work being done. And this at the time was a duty that was typically only allowed for the poor to do. And it's even suspect as to whether or not a foreigner would be allowed to go and do this sort of thing. Now, we also meet Boaz, and we're told at the very beginning that he's this guardian redeemer for the the family. Now, I already told you about the Leverate marriage situation. The whole idea with the guardian redeemer, or in some translations, the kinsman redeemer, is basically that another close relative that doesn't fulfill the Leverate marriage rule can come in and kind of do the same thing. They can maybe marry uh, one one of the uh, widows and they can actually purchase uh, the the land and the sustenance that was left by the deceased husband so that it gets back in the family and so that the women have somebody taking care of them. And so it just so happens in this story, that the very field that Ruth goes to glean in is the field that belongs to a kinsman redeemer for the family. And yet, what we find out is that Boaz's over and above act of grace and kindness, undeserved to this foreign Moabite woman, is not done because he is simply the guardian redeemer. What moves him to do this, he says, is that he has heard of the kindness that Ruth has shown her mother-in-law, Naomi. Because she could have, and maybe even should have, not taken the risk to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem as a foreigner. And yet here she is, working as a poor person, getting the leftovers from the harvest behind the workers to go bring something home to eat and provide sustenance for Naomi. And we get that note where the other workers around mention just how hard she's working. She barely took any rest. Occasionally she sat in the shade for a moment just to catch her breath and went right back to work. And it's this kindness, it's this grace that Ruth is showing her mother-in-law, Naomi, that causes Boaz to take notice and to show kindness to her in return. And what are the ways that he shows kindness? Well, they're very tangible here. 
Number one, in this culture, though it wouldn't have been deemed right per se, they didn't really have to care about the well-being of a foreigner that shows up gleaning in the fields. So the first order of business for Boaz is he went to the man and he said, hey, don't lay a hand on Ruth. She was actually in a dangerous situation doing what she was doing. But he provides protection for her to work. Then we find out that he allows her to drink water from the water jars that the men that are working have filled. So he provides her water when he didn't have to. Then we find out he's offered her bread and she can dip it into the wine vinegar. So she's invited to partake in a meal. And we find out she was given leftovers to take back home. Boaz also tells the men, hey, drop some of the stuff behind you intentionally. Let her pick it up and take it and don't say a word. Boaz has gone above and beyond the responsibility of a Bethlehemite in this scenario to show kindness to the daughter-in-law of Naomi who is out showing kindness and grace to her mother-in-law. Now, one of the odd things about the book of Ruth that, that if, you ever, if you ever even read a quick commentary note or something, is that unlike a lot of uh, Old Testament books, while God is mentioned in passing in this book, he's not what you would consider an active character in the story. But the thing is, is just because he doesn't have an active role or a thus saith the Lord moment, God is everywhere in this book in two ways. One, what we find out is that the people that make the commitment to God and who are given grace by God for them because it's God that makes the harvest plentiful again in the story, that grace prompts them to give grace to others, which is the theme we find throughout the entirety of the Bible. And we know that Ruth has now devoted herself to the God of Israel, even though she was a foreigner before. And we know that Boaz, being a person from Bethlehem and based off of his over and above his requirements, actions, show that he is a devoted person to God. And so because God is over the entire story and his grace is enacted in the tangible deeds of the people in the story, we can take away this one thing from this chapter and really the whole book. And it's this. Grace inspires grace. The story of God in the Bible is that his undeserved grace bestowed on people that have not done anything to merit that grace ends up inspiring them to be grace givers. That's what this chapter shows us. And not only that, that inspiration that, that affects the people, the grace given by people inspires others to be grace givers. It's a more godly and more powerful version of being in the pay it forward line at Starbucks. You know, then it's just kind of guilt. 
This isn't guilt. This is God doing something we don't deserve because he loves us that inspires us to do something for others that they don't deserve because we love them because why he first loved us. And so when we recognize this idea, we, we, have, to, we have to pause for a moment because not only does grace inspire grace, but we have to think in the reverse too. If I'm not inspired to be a grace giver, I have to ask myself the question in the mirror. Have I really come to a point where I've devoted myself to God and accepted his grace in my life? Because every story that you read in scripture, every teaching from every apostle that writes a letter in the New Testament says that God's grace empowers people to be grace givers, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to show kindness, to love, to love others, and to love one another within the church. And in the very tangible ways in the, in the chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, we find in, in this chapter and beyond that that continues to be the way things are with the people of God. When you've received grace, you can't help but be a grace giver. I made the joke earlier about the fact that my discipleship group leaders um, inflicted me with a coffee addiction. But more importantly than that, though, they showed me what it looked like to come around a then 16-year-old kid to instill the faith in him and to stay with him, to walk alongside him so that he'd grow in faith. I came to this church as a 16-year-old kid with a, actually probably was 15 at the time, and I won't get into the murky details, but anyway, I came to this church as a young kid without my family here. I had a friend that brought me here, and it was the leaders in my life that took me under their wing and showed me the way. That's what inspires me to do what I do. They made me into a disciple. They showed me grace. They showed me love. I'm just trying to pay it forward. And I guarantee you that in your life of faith, you have a very similar story. I bet you can point to the very people that showed you grace, love, kindness, the mercy of God in your life. And they've probably, that, that grace that you've been given has probably inspired you to go do the same for other people. That's the way that it works in the Bible. And so I want to close out with a story that brings this idea home. And it's a story of Jesus in the home of a Pharisee having a meal. When an unexpected guest shows up and does an act of kindness and service to Jesus, the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisee that ensues and the thing that we learn. So listen to this story in Luke 7, starting at 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. When she wiped them with her hair, she then kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
under his breath, I'm sure in a condemning tone, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman, still speaking to Simon, and said, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, the, sto the story in Jesus' teaching there at the end is a little peculiar because on the one hand, you think that this might be the first time this woman's interacted with Jesus, but he starts speaking in the past tense about her. He says, she's done this because her sins have been forgiven. Her act of grace to Jesus, her act of kindness her act of service is coming, at, coming from a place of love because of the forgiveness of sins that she received from Jesus. And it's the religious leaders, the elite, the better than everybody else, who not only are missing this point, but they didn't even fulfill the obligation in the room. I can tell you over in that culture still today, there is a hospitality culture I've experienced it. It's great. Now, I didn't get kissed on the face by anybody. But back then, back then that was part of the custom. When you became a guest in somebody's home, they effectively rolled out the red carpet, washed your feet, gave you a kiss on the cheek, let you know that you're welcome. The religious leaders, the people supposedly devoted to God more than anybody in the land, couldn't even show this sense of obligatory hospitality to Jesus. And yet a sinful woman walked in and showed Jesus love beyond what these leaders could do because of the grace she was given by Jesus. Why? Because grace inspires grace. That's the story of Scripture, and it happens to be the story that Ruth captures. And so this week, I challenge you. I want to challenge you. Consider, in your spheres of influence, what would it look like? What would it look like if you showed tangible acts of kindness and grace to others because of the grace given you? And maybe that's something that seems like a foreign idea to you. 
In fact, maybe you haven't received God's grace yet. That I'd encourage you to be open to God's grace by going into the water of baptism today and receiving that grace so that you too can become a grace giver because that's the whole point of the Bible. That's God's redemption plan. He wants his grace to turn the light on in your life so that you will give grace to others so they too can know him in the same way you do. That's the story of Ruth. Grace inspires grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you for being so good and so gracious to us. I thank you for, I thank you so much for your grace. I, I thank you for the people that have shown me grace, love, and kindness in my life. I thank you for the opportunity that I have uh, to pay that forward to others. Um, and I just pray, God, that uh, you will not only encourage me and empower me to continue to do that, but I pray that you will do that for each and every believer in this room. And I pray for those that don't yet know you and know your grace. I pray, God, that they will be stirred inside to make that decision today to enter into a life of following your son by going into and out of the waters of baptism and into a life of giving grace to others. We love you and we thank you for being so good to us. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.